You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. It is a delight to open up God's Word with you again this morning. You know, every week as we gather together, we do, you may have noticed, most of the same things. We want to honor God and encourage each other as we sing songs of worship and praise to Him. We want to honor God by praying together, acknowledging our dependence on Him and our need for Him. We want to honor God by preaching of His Word, by listening to it, believing it, obeying it. This morning, I want to look at the first sermon. Not my first sermon. I don't want you to look probably at my first sermon. That was some years ago. It wasn't really a sermon. It was a high school graduation commencement at the little Christian school that I taught at. It was kind of a sermon because my text was Proverbs 4, guard your heart from or from it flow the issues of life. It was kind of a sermon. It was, I was, I was so nervous. I went there the night before, went into the auditorium where I'd be preaching from and the room was empty and I turned just a light or two on and I went through it several times and um, we're not here to talk about my first sermon. I want to look at the first sermon. The first Christian sermon. You know, it occurred to me that if someone came to a preacher and said, can you give me an example of a great sermon? No preacher ever said, well, you should go back and look at my first one. I'm... But I doubt that holds true when it comes to the church as a whole. The older ones, the earliest sermons, might be among the most helpful and the most revealing. I mean, those first preachers... They knew Jesus personally. They had lived with him, traveled with him, heard him teach, seen his miracles, seen him die on the cross, seen him after he had risen again to life. I'd like to know what they preached about. What kind of things did they have to say? What did the very first Christian sermon tell us? Well, as it turns out, we actually have that sermon in the Bible, Acts chapter 2. I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, it's page 910. Acts chapter 2. This sermon was preached by the Apostle Peter about 50 days after the first Easter. So it's not his Easter sermon, but as we'll see in a moment, it is an Easter sermon. Acts chapter 2. Acts 1, Jesus returns to heaven. His disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come that he promised would come to empower and help them. And at the start of Acts 2, it happens. The Spirit comes in them. They begin to speak in tongues in foreign languages. And people all over the world had gathered in Jerusalem to, to worship God. And they heard in their own languages people pronouncing and singing the praises of God. And a great crowd gathered and Many people were amazed. A few people mocked and like, ah, they must be drunk. There's no other explanation for that. So Peter, in Acts 2, stands up to speak. And in kind of the intro to his sermon, he's like, look, they're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. 
This is just what the prophet Joel predicted would happen at the end when God poured his spirit out and God began to bring his salvation. And then in verse 22, the heart of the sermon begins. So, so let's look there. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is God's word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray. Father, I pray now in these next few minutes that you'd help us as we consider this sermon, as we consider your son on this day. I pray that your spirit would teach us, would open our minds and our hearts to not just see and understand, but receive and embrace the truth of your word. That Jesus might in every heart here be glorified. I pray in his name. Amen. A number of years ago when I was in seminary, as you know, I worked at a Jewish synagogue down in Louisville, Kentucky. And um, my job there was to clean and set things up and tear things down and fix things and this sort of thing. And one Wednesday afternoon, I was in the main sanctuary and uh, cleaning things up, and I went to, they had two podiums, one on either side, and I went to the one over here on the right, and there was uh, several pages of notes. And just before this, the, the rabbi had been in there with a, a teenage girl. They were preparing for her bat mitzvah. And so that, that whole was a, was a long and elaborate process, as you can imagine. She had to, to read a portion of the, the Torah, the, in Hebrew, of course, that she was practicing and preparing, a, a passage that was special to her. And, and then she had to give a uh, kind of a speech, kind of outlining her spiritual journey and then thanking everyone like it was the Oscars or something. And, and so that's kind of the, the way that would go. And so I, th they had been in there practicing, and when they were done, I went in and did a little cleaning up, and I went up to this podium and saw that her notes were sitting there. 
Now, I'm not normally a very curious person, but on this particular day I was. And so I went, I'm just curious, what, what's she going to talk about in this? And so I just was kind of reading through some of the notes that were sitting there that they left behind. And, and I noticed one particular line that struck me as she explained her spiritual journey. She mentioned that she had thought about Christianity, but she could, just didn't get that whole resurrection from the dead thing. I just don't get that. I also noticed that the rabbi had taken a pen and drawn a line through that sentence. He apparently didn't want that part of, uh, part of her story. And I wonder why. I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, he was afraid someone might be offended. It was a very politically correct sort of place. Maybe he just didn't want someone mentioning Jesus, Christianity, and the resurrection from the dead in a Jewish bat mitzvah ceremony. I don't really know why he crossed it off. But I don't really get the whole resurrection from the dead thing. You know, to understand and embrace the Christian faith, you have to get the whole resurrection from the dead thing. There just isn't any way around it. It's at the very center of the story. And as we looked at this first sermon just a moment ago, we see that it's focused almost entirely on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, let's look at it again. I, I, we don't have Peter's original preaching notes. It would be fantastic if they were in a museum somewhere. I don't really know if he had notes. But we can see his outline pretty clearly. I think we can reconstruct it. It goes something like this, starting in verse 22. Jesus was sent by God. In fact, this whole first paragraph, everything he has to say keeps coming back to God. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works. You saw, he says, you know what he did. You heard him teach. You saw the miracles. You saw the signs. God did it. God was attesting. This man is from God through the signs and through the miracles. Jesus was sent by God. It's Peter's clear first point. And the second point is, the people and their leaders, he says, you killed him. You killed him. He was sent to you by God, and you killed him. Now, this was God's plan, too, as Peter makes clear, but Peter doesn't left him, let him off the hook. God sent him. You killed him. And, and they can't deny it. You know, they're not like, Peter, you can't prove that. It's only been 50 days. Everybody knows they did that. Everybody knows that. Jesus was sent by God. You killed him. And the third point, God raised him from the dead. Now this point, they do want to deny. This point, as the other gospel accounts make clear, they will go to great pains to conceal and deny that God raised Jesus from the dead. Maybe they just thought that idea was impossible. Maybe they couldn't get it. And it gets interesting here, what Peter says. Look at verse 24. After he says they crucified Jesus, in verse 24 it says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter says it couldn't have been otherwise. It couldn't have happened any other way. He says that they were, 
He loosed the pangs of death. That word for pangs is usually a word to describe labor pains. When a woman is in labor, in travail, giving birth. The imagery Paul or Peter is, is invoking here is this idea of a woman in childbirth. She can't, she's, she's dealing with a pain, but there's nothing she can do to stop it. The baby's coming out. And he uses that same sort of language to speak of Jesus in the tomb. Jesus captured by death, in the pains of death, but, but there's simply no way to stop it. He's coming out. He's not going to stay. Death in the tomb can't hold him. Peter says it's impossible that death should keep him. Impossible? Why impossible? Every dead person that Peter had ever encountered stayed dead. Every single one. Just like me and you. Every dead person we have ever encountered stayed dead. But Peter says of Jesus, no, it was, it was impossible. It was impossible that he would stay dead. It was impossible that death could keep him. And Peter's not stupid. He's not confused about whether death is a temporary or permanent state. He understands it just like you and I do. But Jesus is a special case, unique, one of kind. Peter's saying it had to be this way. Why? And here's the fourth point in his outline. It takes up the whole rest of the sermon as it's recorded here. He turns to David. Now, turning to David, he's going back a thousand years to Israel's most famous and important king. David's been dead for a thousand years, but he still matters. He's still significant to them. And Peter goes right there to David because David had been given a promise by God. God and David had entered into a covenant together. And the promise that God had given David was that David would always have a son to rule over God's people forever. So Peter goes right to Psalm 16, a psalm that David wrote. Look especially at verse 27. It's most clear there. He quotes that psalm. He quotes King David. And this is what he quotes David as saying. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Hades is the place where the dead go. And David says, you won't abandon me to Hades. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. But that creates a problem, a very obvious problem. Peter points it out right away in verse 29. He says, look, brothers, I can say to you with confidence, David's dead. His tomb's here. We all know where it is. David in Psalm 16 is like, God, you're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. You're not going to abandon me to Hades. But we all know David's dead. No one's arguing that. So what in the world is David talking about? And the explanation is in the next verse. David wasn't talking about himself after all. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he'd set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Here's Peter's point, verse 32. This Jesus, God, raised up. He says, David wasn't ever talking about David himself. 
He was talking about his greater son, Jesus, who could not. It was not possible that he could be constrained by death. And Peter says, we're witnesses. We've seen him. We know it's true. We saw him ourselves. And there's the message. God sent Jesus. You guys killed him. God raised him up to fulfill what David and the prophets said must happen. But there's one more important element. Look at verse 36. He says, So let all the house of Israel know for certain God's made him, Jesus, both Lord, that is Master, and Christ, Messiah, this Jesus who you crucified. And they are, verse 37 says, cut to the heart, and they say to Peter in response to the sermon, brothers, what do we do? What do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent of what exactly? What is it they're supposed to turn away from, confess, be sorry for, and reject? Well, we, we might expect him to say, repent of your sins, and, and that would be appropriate. And we might expect him to say, well, stop your lying, and stop your cheating, and stop your stealing, and stop your lusting, and stop your boasting, and stop your selfishness, and stop your anger. That's, we might say, you've got to stop doing all that stuff. And so they should. But that's not really the big issue here. There's really one first thing that these people are explicitly confronted about in this sermon that they must repent of, and that is this. They've rejected Jesus. God sent his Messiah, and you killed him. You didn't believe him. You didn't embrace him. You, you killed him. You rejected him. That's the real issue. You know, sometimes people think that Christianity is just, a, it's just an ethical system. That Christianity is just a, a list of rules, of laws, of do's and don'ts. And people think, why should I become a Christian? Why are your rules? Why is your system? Why are your do's and don'ts any better than mine? And, and I can't really blame people for thinking that way. Sometimes Christians, Christians think and act that's like that's what Christianity is, an ethical system. We do this, we don't do that. That's okay, that's not okay. Sometimes we act like that's what Christianity is all about. And no wonder people say, I'll just stick to my own rules. Thanks, I don't need yours. But Christianity isn't an ethical system, although it has one. Christianity isn't based on a bunch of rules or laws or do's or don'ts. Christianity is first, foremost, and always about a person. Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Son of God. A number of years ago, I did an evangelistic Bible study with some folks. We were just looking at Jesus, looking at his life and his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, his death and resurrection. And we worked through this for a number of weeks. And there was a sweet woman in that group who, who was very interested in following Jesus. Very interested. She'd wrestled with who Jesus was and 
what it is he'd done. She, she had, had really worked through and she, she got the resurrection. She could buy that. The end of the study, there was a call to trust in Jesus. But she had one hang-up that just kept her from going forward. She, she couldn't accept some of the Bible's ethical teachings, some of its rules, if you will, or laws. I don't, uh, particularly concerning sexuality. I don't need to tell you that the Bible's sexual ethic is very different from this world's sexual ethic. And it wasn't that she wanted to violate it herself. She just, she just felt like it was too restrictive, too unfair to people who wanted to do things differently. She just couldn't bring herself to embrace an ethical position that might put her at odds with people that she really cared about. And I felt some of her pain. It's hard sometimes to go against what feels like an overwhelming tide. But, but I want to point out gently that that approach to Christianity gets it exactly backwards. The real question, the real issue is always Jesus. We, we don't want to pick our religion, our life philosophy, our worldview, based on which one has the most attractive rules. I mean, that's what Israel was doing all the time in the Old Testament, right? They're constantly going away to these worship these idols and get in trouble, and you think, well, what's, what was so amazing about the theology and doctrine of those idols that would, kept drawing them away into trouble? And it wasn't the theology or doctrine of it at all. It was that they worshipped with crazy wild parties and all sorts of debauchery. That's what drew them away. They chose the God they worshipped based on which one seemed like the most fun in the moment. We don't want to we don't want to base our decision about what we believe and who we worship and how we follow and what we fashion our life around based on, well, which one has the most attractive rules? We want to base it on what's true. Otherwise, it's like, it's like having a life-threatening illness and picking your medicine based on how close the pharmacy is that has it and uh, how well it fits, the bottle fits into your current medicine cabinet and what the, how serious the side effects might be. It's like saying, well, I need chemo, but I'm going to take aspirin because it's just more convenient and it doesn't hurt as much. That's, that's not the question. The question is, what do you need? What's true? What will really help you? If Jesus is the Son of God crucified for sinners and raised from the dead, as he clearly is in God's word, then we must listen to him and believe him and worship him and obey him even if it means down the road some of the things he calls us to are hard or difficult or challenging. In fact, those are exactly the things we ought to expect following him will be. Because he's not just a savior who suffers on a cross. He's also a, the promised king who must be worshipped. So these early sermons come back again and again to the same issue. God sent Jesus, you rejected and killed him, God raised him, like David and the prophets said, and you must repent. I mean, just turn over, turn over one chapter to chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 and verse 13. Different situation. It's the same story. Chapter 3, verse 13 of Acts. They're speaking to the people in the temple. He said, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus 
whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. You denied the Holy and Righteous One, asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Down in verse, 18, or verse 17. Now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That's the same message. God sent Jesus, you killed him. God raised him from the dead like the prophets predicted. Repent. Turn over a couple more chapters. Chapter 5. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, that is, when the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, had brought the disciples, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Jesus' name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. That's the same story again. God sent Jesus. You killed him. God raised him like the prophet said. Repent. This pattern continues down through many of the earliest sermons. But I wonder this this morning if the apostles could somehow step out of the first century Jerusalem and, and, and all of a sudden be here with us this morning, what would they say? I mean, we weren't there in Jerusalem when Jesus was killed. We weren't there clamoring for his death. We're not among the Jewish leaders. What would they say to us? How could we know? Well, actually, I think we can Turn to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we see yet another sermon. It's not Peter now, it's Paul. And it's not in Jerusalem, it's far away in Galatia. Speaking there to a group of people who weren't in Jerusalem, who hadn't been clamoring for Jesus' death. They weren't among the religious leaders there. And look what he says to them. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They thought they found in him, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. And I'm going to read all of these psalms. But he starts quoting David again, just like previously, just like Peter was in those earlier sermons. Um, verse 38 let it therefore be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from anything or everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I think if, if the apostles could come here this morning, they'd tell us the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I know you weren't there. 
But the issue is no different. You've got to turn to this Jesus and embrace him. Message does not change. It has not changed. Christianity is always first and foremost about Jesus. But notice, notice what he goes on to say as he concludes this. Verse 40. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And I was going to quote Habakkuk 1.5. He says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. In Habakkuk, these people are looking, wondering, what is God doing? Is God doing anything? And what, what he's about to do in Habakkuk chapter 1 is judge God's people using the Babylonians. God's enemies are going to come and be the instrument of God's judgment on his own people, which is going to blow their minds. But they've not been faithful to God. And, and Paul grabs that here and says, look, don't let that happen to you. Listen, he says, I know this is new news for you. I know you haven't heard this before. And I know you weren't part of what they did there, but beware. God's doing something new. He sent his son, Jesus, crucified for sinners, raised again for new life. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. He's doing something new. And the issue is the same for them as it was for the people in Jerusalem as it is for you and I today. Who will you embrace? Trust, believe this Jesus. Jesus is the issue. Not the rules. Not the ethical system. The, the, the first issue, the issue you must first wrestle with is will you trust Jesus? Well, this, this pattern continues through so many of the messages in Acts. It's, it's the same issue today. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and even if you are, the question that confronts us every day is, will we submit to Jesus? Let's look, at, let's look back at Acts 5. We were there a minute ago. Look back at Acts 5. We'll finish there this morning. Look at Acts chapter 5. The, the religious leaders, they'd already arrested the apostles. They'd put them in prison. They'd say, stop teaching about Jesus. They'd put them in prison. Uh, in the middle of the night, an angel comes, releases them. They go back out. They go right back to the temple, and they start preaching again. And so the next morning, uh, the religious leaders don't know it, but the apostles are all in the temple preaching, and they say, okay, it's time for the trial. Go down to the prison. Bring those guys here, and we're going to you know, hear this out. Well, they go down. They're like, well, they're gone. They're not there. I'm like, well, what do you mean they're gone? Where'd they go? Uh, they're back in the temple teaching already. And so they're, they're just ticked. They bring them back again. And they appear before the council and they say, look, we told you, we strictly charged, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, let me ask you this. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? And they appreciated the perspective Peter brought on the situation. <laughs> no, not one bit, right? They reject the whole question. Because in their minds, it's a false, false question. They, they don't see any difference, right? They are the religious leaders. They, they live in a country where the religious leaders are more or less the political leaders too. 
They control the temple. That's where the worship of God happens. They control the altar and the sacrifices and the priesthood that must be brought. They control the teaching and understanding of the Torah and the law. So when Peter says, should we obey God or you, in their minds they're thinking, what's the difference? It's the same thing. We speak for God. When Peter's words burn them, just burn them. He says, this God raised Jesus, who you killed. You don't speak for God. You're fighting God. God exalted him at right hand as leader and savior. We're witness these things, and, and so is the Holy Spirit, as God has, whom God has given to those who obey him, which does not include you, by the way. He didn't say that, but the implication is left hanging right there. When they heard this, verse 33, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Why so angry? Why so upset? Thousands, literally thousands of the people are rejoicing at the message of Jesus and God's salvation. They are furious. And all through these chapters and acts, everywhere the gospel goes, that's what you see. You see some people coming to faith, finding joy in life in Christ, and you find other people that are furious and jealous and angry. Why? Well, as it turns out, these religious leaders have a lot to lose. They're in charge. They call the shots. Everyone submits to them. Things go their way should we obey God or you and they say what's the difference it's the furious see even the best intention of people trip over this today we can become so certain in our rightness or secure in our good intentions or our good morals or our good actions but the real issue for us is the same issue that confronted them Will we submit to Jesus? Will we acknowledge Him as Lord? Or do we want to hang on to, tight-fisted, grasping, I'm in charge, I make the decisions, I call the shots in my life, I decide what's right and wrong for me, I decide the direction I go, I, I, I. So much so, that sometimes those of us who are most successful, whose lives seem to be going the best, can have the hardest time turning to Jesus because we feel like we got it. Don't need that. And so often it's the people that are most desperate and most struggling and have the most need that find themselves able to submit to Jesus and give everything to him. The issue never changes. It will never change. Will we submit to Jesus? You say, why should I? How do I know? And the message of all these sermons is because God raised him from the dead. That's the proof. That's the proof that we need. God has raised him from the dead. He has exalted him to his own right hand as king and savior and Lord. And the question confronting each of us this morning is, will you? And are you submitting to him? You know, it's interesting. 
as chapter 5 ends and as we end here this morning. They're furious. And, and one of the leaders of the group, a man named Gamaliel, who is, as we find out later, is the one who was the mentor and, and um, teacher of the Apostle Paul before he was Paul, stands up. And Gamaliel is wise and respected. And, and to, to paraphrase what he says, he says, listen, slow down, be careful, be careful. You remember that one guy, Thutis, uh, some time ago who uh, started this whole thing and a bunch of people followed him. They went out in the wilderness and they were going to make this big old revolt. And you remember what happened? He died and his followers are all scattered and it's done. Or you remember that other guy, Judas, the Galilean? Same kind of story. He gathered a bunch of followers and they were going to revolt against Rome and against us. And well, then he died and you know, whatever happened to them, they're long gone. He says, so, so be careful, Gamaliel says. Be careful, look, because if, if, if this is not from God... It's going to fizzle out. It's going to fizzle out. Nothing's going to happen of it, and we won't be talking about this in 20 years. He says, but, but if it is from God, you can't stop it. And you might even find yourselves opposing God. I think that's pretty interesting as we think how this very morning there are thousands tens of thousands, hundreds of millions of churches around this globe who are worshiping a resurrected Savior 2,000 years later. And all those that oppose it find themselves, however unwittingly, opposing God. And just this morning, the news of over 200 people killed in a bombing in Sri Lanka, churches. You can oppose it, but you can't stop it. Christ is building his church. And Gamaliel's words tell us something today. The question that confronts us and will to the very end when Jesus returns, the question that confronts you, it is the most important question in your life. Will you submit to Jesus? Will you trust in God's Son, his death and resurrection for you? Father, I pray. We, we are deeply needy people. Lord, we, we weren't there. We weren't there on that day when the crowds called, crucify him. We weren't there to cast our vote in the Sanhedrin when the demand went forth that Jesus must die. We, we weren't there. But Father, some of that same rebellion against your son resides in each of our hearts. It's natural. We didn't have to go looking for it. It's, we want to be in charge ourselves. We feel that, that following Christ and giving ourselves up for him, we feel like we have too much to lose. So, Father, this is what I ask this morning for, for every person here. I would ask that the things we feel like are too costly to give up in following Christ would seem to us increasingly pointless, worthless, not valuable, and that Jesus would seem to us precious and glorious in all of his promises, in all of his glory, in all of his goodness, in all the salvation that he brings to those who turn, repent of their sin and selfishness and pride, and put their trust in Jesus, crucified for us, risen to life to secure our life if we'll trust in him. Lord, I pray no person would leave this morning. No person would leave Springview Community Church this morning 
without first putting their all of their heart and soul and faith into Jesus. Lord, I pray you'd do that work. Even, even right in this moment, I pray your spirit would do that supernatural, miraculous work in somebody's heart and in somebody's life. Father, I pray also for those of us who have trusted in Christ. Father, every day, every day is a temptation to try to climb back up onto the throne of our life, to call our own shots, to put ourselves in charge, to put our will and our way above your will and your way, which is not only foolish, it's sinful. And so, Father, I pray for us great humility, great faith and confidence to trust you in everything and all things, that you might be glorified in us and that we might find in you an impossibly great and an everlasting joy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.